On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. They were O'Driscoll, Morgan, extra man, it's Fitzgerald, oh, Fitzgerald is coming back inside! Ulster fans, we have not forgotten about you, don't worry. I know we haven't touched on the Northern Province that much over the opening two shows, or, or I don't know no, we even touched on them at all, Luke, but we have a Ulster special tonight, or we're certainly going to cover them for a good bit. We have Jonathan Bradley on from the Belfast Telegraph in a couple of minutes. Another interesting weekend of rugby, a lot of positives, a couple of negatives, the orgy Snyman injury we're going to touch on a bit later. That was probably the, the, the big blow over the reef weekend after a great win for Munster as well, Luke. Uh, I know you're obviously probably the injury expert in some way, See, so I'm sure you have a lot of empathy for him. You have to be an expert in something, I suppose, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not a far reach to, to I suppose, um, get there. Yeah, look, really disappointed for the guy. He's got a, a you know a long comeback. Um, I know we'll discuss it a little bit more, uh, I'm sure, with, with Jonathan, but um, huge loss for both province and player. I'm really disappointed for him. So uh, we we wish him all the best, and hopefully he recovers quickly from that. Um, I don't I don't think that'll be the case, considering it's the same leg. So um, yeah, wish him all the best on that one. Well, it's a bit of a dreary one, but there was loads to be you know excited about on the day. Um, you know, the, the only real disappointment really was was Connacht. I think, you know, Leinster, yeah, it was a bit messy. There was a few changes that had to happen, but I thought they got their, they got it back together pretty quickly. Uh, you know, Ulster had a tidy performance as well. You know, some, some good showings from, from some guys there as well uh, coming into November. So uh, interesting to see if any of those guys put a hand up into uh, and get into Andy Farrell's squad. Um, but yeah, Munster were definitely the standout performance. I mean, that was a real eye, eye catcher. Uh, lots of young guys on show. Um, you know, Jack O'Donoghue was a guy as well. I mean, I wonder, like, I mean, that kind of performance, that chipped through for the try. It was a lucky bounce to still go infield, but it was still a lovely touch, and the break was brilliant. Like, he's a guy who I've been wondering about for a long time. It, you know, he looks like he's kind of built for the next step up. Um, so that was great to see him uh, play so well. Um, you know, interesting to see if he gets more opportunities throughout the season. So there was loads to be positive about Will. Um not surprised the Groucho like you started with the Orgy Snyman downer, but um, <laughs> I'm only joking. But um, yeah, look, it's uh, loads to, loads to talk, and, and delighted to have uh, Jonathan joining us now for uh, for what is a real. It's one for the rugby nerds this weekend, I think, isn't it? There's there's loads to talk about. Oh yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, as Luke mentioned, we're going to talk about Munster and their performance in a little while, and also a bit about the out half kind of picture in Ireland. Johnny Sexton coming off the bench early against Ebre and looking as sharp as ever. We're going to discuss a bit about who maybe the ultra alternatives are to him or, or if he is still the main man by quite a distance. But first, it's time to talk Ulster. We'd like to have Jonathan Bradley here with us. Jonathan, how are you? 
Yeah, no, do well. Thanks. Uh, it's a good time to have you on. I think we, we haven't really touched on Ulster a huge amount over the first couple of weeks, and I know there's a lot to get to over the course of the show. But we might start there first and foremost because I know that's probably your bread and butter in, in many ways. You know, you know, it's an interesting time for the team. It's like you know, year four of the Dan McFarlane project, and the first couple of years, year one and two in particular, there was definitely some a lot of growth there, both in terms of how they finished in the you know in the seasons, getting into the knockouts of both tournaments, and just you know how the team was playing last year. Maybe not quite as successful, albeit there was kind of changes in the format, which probably hamstrung Ulster as much as any other team. What's what's the kind of the mood on the ground now? Like, how would you kind of set the scene for us heading into this new season? I know they're tree from tree, but you know, what's the mood like there at the moment? Yeah, like I think interesting is the word for it because I think probably quite similar to the position that Munster find themselves in over the last couple of years. If you have a bit of a dip and then you start to build things back up again, the mood's very positive because everything's in sort of continual ascendancy. And then you get to this point where you're back in semifinals, you're playing knockout rugby. And you realize that to go from sixth or seventh in the league to back into the playoffs or to go from getting knocked out in the pool stages in Europe to getting into the quarterfinals is actually a lot easier than taking that next step and winning those big, big knockout games. So I don't think that it's even that they're playing any worse than they were in those first years under Dan McFarland. I think it's actually the opposite. They're playing better, but what's just happened as a natural result of that improvement is that expectations have gone up as well. So now what would have been seen as a good season two years ago is now seen as something of a disappointment. So it's, you know, as a team that hasn't won silverware in so long, that's the continual talk of what they need to do, what their aims are for the season. And if you set the bar that high, and at the end of the day, in order to achieve that, you have to get past Lancer, which they haven't been able to do. Then you're almost setting yourself up for a disappointment in a, a certain type of way. Yeah, because even just looking at the table after three weeks, the teams you were all unbeaten at the top of the table, Leinster, Munster, Ulster, I suppose. So as you say there, they're going to have to get over their, their big rivals if they do want to end that trophy drought. Luke, from your perspective, looking in, you know... How are you looking at Ulster at the moment? You know, Jonathan kind of touched on it there. Is in the, there was that initial growth period where Dan McFarlane took over and the team wasn't in a good place and, and he was able to get them back up competing in the knockouts. But then for the next step, which we've talked about before, even when we were talking about Connacht le- last weekend, you know, what did they need to do? And then we saw them kind of that consistency piece over the weekend it didn't really hold up. You know, what, how are you looking at Ulster at the moment? Yeah, I think positive. Um would echo a lot of Jonathan's thoughts on that. I think it's probably the next step is the most difficult one. Um, I do love that little bit of business, or could I say a little bit of business, uh, with uh, Vermeulen. I'm not sure that that um, that word's ever been associated with that man. I, I think that's a great bit of business for them. Um, and I think they probably need one or two more, um, or they need some of the young guys probably to step up. And, I, and I'm probably more thinking about in the pack, to be honest with you. Uh, I think that's where Ulster have come a little bit unstuck, um, you know, when, when it's come down to crunch time. And I probably have similar views with, with Munster, to a lesser extent, the pack with Munster. But like Leinster, where, what's given them the consistency and what's given them the, the platform to be successful and go on and win these big matches over the last however many number of years at this stage, it's the pack. They're really formidable up there and they have 
you know, if, if someone's injured, they have great guys to come in. I mean, still waiting on Kalen Doris to come back in, et cetera, et cetera. But to come back to the Ulster conversation, um, I think they've been going in the right direction. I think there's, they're, they're very, very close. Uh, I think they look like they've got depth in the squad. Um, they've got exciting players. Um, Honourable mention to, um, uh, you know, Craig Gilroy. I thought he was brilliant in the weekend. It was super to see him back. He looked so, so sharp. And that was good to see. Um, but, you know, you've got Stockdale, you've got Balakun, you've got loads of talent there. It's just a matter, again, for us of getting them a good platform. And I think as well, you know, yes, Billy Burns is, is the number one choice at the moment. Ian Madigan out injured. But that's a close battle, too. And I really think you do need that. You do need strong stand-ins there with John Cooney, of course, to come back into that nine position with Doak looking very, very strong and a really good prospect in the future as well. So I think it's rosy up there at the moment, Will. Very difficult to take the last step, but I think they're moving in the right direction. Um, maybe one or two more you know, guys to step up or to come in into the pack. But uh, yeah, positive soundings and I have a positive view uh, on Ulster at the moment. Yeah, Jonathan, just in the Dwayne Vermeulen one, like, is there any kind of backstory you can give to us on that? Like, how did it come about? Obviously, losing Marcel could see early from his deal because he wanted to go back to the Bulls was a huge blow. I know he was, he was, you know, a key man up there for Ulster, but to replace him with someone like that is, is massive. Like, how did it come together? Was it was it, were you as surprised as everyone else when when the news kind of broke? <laughs> yeah, I think like everyone was massively surprised because of the pace at which things moved in terms of this move, opposed to the pace of how everything seemed to be going before that. So, you know, essentially, Ulster became aware that Marcel Gatia wanted to leave way, way, way back at the start of the first lockdown when he'd gone back home to South Africa. And, you know, that was never going to work for them or really the player to get somebody else or to get a club that was willing to take him at that time. So they were always probably aware that they weren't going to have Katsia next season. But I think the way that it happened and his real determination to go home and the Bulls' determination to get him in for this season probably surprised people. And then the Nakawara move that was lined up, I mean, to me, it didn't make a ton of sense. Like, I understand the need to get somebody in who had a bit of an X factor, would have been a marquee signing in order to replace somebody who had really become your best player. But and in terms of a like-for-like like comparison, I just didn't see Nakarawa making that same impact that Marcel would have done. Obviously, a different type of player, but at very different stages of their career as well. So to go from there, and then you're into the summer, and all the talk out of Ulster is that they don't want to sign a player just to sign a player. You know, they don't want to get a body in just to say that they've signed somebody. If there wasn't somebody of that quality there, they weren't going to go out and make a signing. And when you hear that kind of talk and that kind of logic, it all makes perfect sense. But what you don't anticipate is that there is somebody of that quality going to be going to become available. And by all accounts, it was a relatively quick process from essentially Bryn Cunningham, who's the operations director up here, just sticking his head into Dan McFarland's door one day and saying, what do you think about Dwayne Vermeulen? 
And obviously, Dan, <laughs> I'll take being it. fairly enthusiastic <laughs> about it, yeah. you're not going to say no to that, are you? So. <laughs> Uh, but it, you know what I, I will say, uh, Jonathan, and, and it'd be good to get your view on this one. Um, you know, I, I think it speaks a huge amount of, you know, the the ability to sell the project. Like that's a big thing for for a coach to be able to do. You're you're you know obviously yes. So Dan might have been involved in the process a little bit late, um, possibly. But surely he would have had a conversation with Dwayne. Brain obviously can sell the project there as well. Like that bodes, like that says a huge amount about what they can offer up there and the quality of the guys who are running the show. Um, because I think for you know lots of coaches, you can be a good coach. You know, you can you can get to a certain level. I'm not saying that's easy, but you can do that. But taking the next step, you need to be able to instill belief in great players that you're that that's a place they want to be. Because I would have to, you'd have to think. Um, that there was more money on offer somewhere else with a better climate uh, than Ireland. Um, you know, that kind of, no, seriously, but like he's just come from France, Will. So like, you know, it's not like it's a huge step for him to go back to a Toulon or a whoever it is. Again, like I'm, I'm being deadly serious. I think it speaks a huge amount to be able to sell the project. Um, and I, I've, I think the same thing about Munster. You know, they must have some really good salespeople down there. And that's why both clubs have been trending in the right direction. Is because they're able to get these good players in. Now, obviously, Munster. We're not going to. We'll, we'll touch on obviously the the disappointment uh, about their big marquee signing. But what, what do you make of that part, Jonathan? Sorry, it's a very long winded question, but I mean, I think it's because- no, absolutely. Look, I I agree a hundred percent because if you look at say 10, 12 years ago when also were bringing in these marquee players, when Afoa was coming in, when Pinar was coming in, when Johan Muller was coming in, Pedri Vonnenberg was coming in. It was a completely different market because the money was there in Irish rugby that wasn't there elsewhere. And since then, you know, as well as France, as well as England, we've seen Japan come into the market as major players. And, you know, even the US for players at that stage of their career, where if you're that size of a name where you would be getting more money. But one of the things that I think really works in Ulster's favour in this regard is just how much the South Africans that have been here have loved living here. So, you know, if you have somebody like Rian Pinar, who played with Vermeulen, basically acting as an ambassador for the place because, you know, obviously never wanted to leave. So these guys can have conversations. I was, you know, I was talking to Franco van der Merwe for a piece for the paper for this week and, just with Ulster playing the Lions and talking to him about his experience, how he ended up coming over. And he said, you know, to be perfectly honest, he didn't know anything really about Ulster before he arrived, but he talked to Johan Muller and he talked to Rian Pinar. And they essentially sold him on the place, said that he would love it. And it, not even just South Africans, I suppose, because, you know, it was Ian Nagel that got Mick Carney here, who was the other um, the other signing this offseason, talking about how much he'd enjoyed his short stint here. So as much as it is guys like Bryn and Dan selling the selling the province, it's also former players as well who I suppose just talking about the experience that they've had here because obviously living here myself I'm a bit biased, but I think that people are often surprised by how much they like living in Belfast because it's probably a city that once you're here is maybe a bit different to the reputation that it would have. 
And one interesting thing about the kind of the project and contracts, and I saw, I think you guys were talking about it on your uh, Ulster Rugby podcast that you do up uh, with the Belfast Telegraph, was John Cooney's future. It's kind of an interesting one. You know, we we've, we really associate him with the Dan McFarlane project in the sense of, of being maybe the key player driving them on over the last number of years. But now with the emergence of Nathan Doak and John Cooney maybe not fitting into the national picture, there does seem to be a pretty you know big conversation at the moment up there, Jonathan, about whether or not he will stay on after this season. What what like how is that playing out? Do you think? Yeah, well, I think it's something that when you consider the way that more John Cooney's Ireland prospects have gone, and the stage that he's at of his own career, less than Nathan Doak, because you know I think it would be folly for Ulster to think, oh, we've got Nathan Doak, so we don't need John Cooney, because if you look at you know, the blueprints for any successful side in European rugby. You can't have enough good players even in specialised positions. But if you're looking at John Cooney, and obviously he's not been capped since before the pandemic, so that 2026 Nations, he's not been involved. He had a 50-man training squad assembled there recently, and he's not even not even in that. So when you're that far down the depth chart, and he said this himself, you have to start to think, differently about what your I suppose aspirations are and I don't think he views Ireland as a real realistic realistic opportunity anymore for him so at 31 years old and probably looking at the last big contract of his career does he want to go and experience something different you know experience a different rugby culture he's obviously moved around Ireland but you know he's not played outside of Ireland so I don't think anyone would blame John Cooney the way things have gone for him with Ireland. And, you know, even with Ulster getting dropped for that uh, Pro 14 final, that if he did look to go elsewhere, and certainly the way that the contract falls with running out this summer, I don't think it would surprise anyone if he was to leave. Yeah, look, it would be kind of a a big move for John Cooney and for someone who's been so important to that project over the last number of years. it, It would be a blow, but... As Jonathan says, yeah, you could understand his thinking if if he did opt to, you know, go to France, but it has been maybe mooted. Yeah, look, I think, you know, and I, I can't say I disagree with him, but I, at the same time, I probably would have been um, a bit more tactful. You might associate that word with me all the time, but uh, just about maybe letting people, let, letting the Irish selectors know that, you know, he was really upset about not being selected and that he didn't really want to come down because he felt like he didn't have a proper shake at it, you know. Um, clearly not being in that 50-man squad, like that that's that's a result of that, I'm not going to say outburst, but it's it's a result of those kind of conversations, you know. So I think that that relationship is broken down. And yeah, you could definitely see why John might have a look around. But I think it would kind of be a bit of a shame. I agree with Jonathan. I think most teams have two really good nines. It's such an important position because you're touching the ball the most out of anyone on the pitch. So... You are the, um, you know, the, the the on-field general. And you're the one who is very much, I know, sorry, 10 is obviously a key position as well. But nine to me really is the connection between the forwards and the backs. And I think, you know, you're very much a, um, you know, a, a conduit for, for the coach. And to, you know, try and implement the game plan, you need your nine on board. So I, I would say that would be a loss for Ulster. I, I think they should try and keep them uh, as best they can. Uh, they might not be able to compete, uh, you know, as Jonathan alluded to, with maybe that French market. And it does seem like there's a bit of interest there. Although I'm always sceptical enough 
when those things end up in the paper because I just feel like one of the agents has leaked it somewhere. Um, Luke Fitzgerald the monster that was always a handy <laughs> one for a few column but I actually did meet him I met uh, Rob Penny a couple of times and uh, was pretty close actually more close uh, when I just left school to be honest but let's get on to more interesting topics Will um, thanks for drudging up my, my dark history um, but uh, look it, it's an interesting one I, I think there's there's more life in that in, in John and, and Ulster I think he has a future there I think himself and Doe could be a really nice uh, one-two punch um depends who you I don't know I mean John John might be worried that he's not the one punch anymore um but I still think there's a big future for there up there and I think Ulster really like him um and I think he's been a great servant up there so yeah look it's one to watch and definitely we'll be speculating more about it until we get something uh, some kind of certainty around it but um I really rate him highly always have um, and I can see why he might be a little bit frustrated, but I think that's a place that's, uh, you know, I've said it for the last couple of years. I think Ulster are, are a place that's um, that's going to be competing, and I think it's going to get to that next stage, whether they win it or not, but I think they're going to be there, thereabouts in the conversation, and that's all you can really ask for at this stage of your career. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know how much more money he can make going abroad versus what he'll get in Ulster, but he has a real chance of winning something up there, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm watching that one closely, like everyone in Ulster is, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and Jonathan, just last word on us before we maybe move on to some of the other provinces. Nathan Doak, just his performance over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, some people might have seen him in the summer in that uh, rearranged under 26 nations. He was very impressive in some of Ireland's games there, but he's been brilliant the first couple of weeks. And already some people are talking maybe a potential Ireland call-up in the near future. Um, you know, how impressed have you been with him over the, over the last you know couple of matches, even just to start this season? Yeah, I think he's been he's been super impressive, but. I don't know if I would say I've been massively surprised because to be perfectly honest, like this guy is somebody that, you know, watching him at medallion sheet level, which is our sort of 14-year-old, 15-year-old age group in schools rugby, he looked a cut above then. Watching him play in the schools cup for Wallace, he looked a cut above then. Seeing, it, seeing him play for A games or in A games while he was still in school, you know, so... We're talking about a 17-year-old kid who's playing against, you know, the likes of the Cardiff Blues A-side or whatever and going up against 27, 28, 29-year-old, essentially veteran professionals and not looking out of place. Like, again, with the under-20s, you're talking about a guy that every everything that's been asked of him, every level that he's been asked to step up to, he's looked like he's been doing it for years. Like, that's the most impressive thing about him, just the, uh, the composure that he has and a bit of that sort of usual scrum half confidence that he has in himself and his own ability that he just doesn't appear to be awed by these things. Like as impressive as everything he's doing around the field is throwing even his goal kicking, like his goal kicking has been massive in the past or two of the past three weeks. And to think about the extra pressure that that's putting on himself, but it almost looks like he thrives under it, to be honest. Mm. No, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how he kicks on over the course of this season. You know, if when John Cooney comes back from injury, how how Dan McFarlane goes about that selection dilemma. Luke, maybe moving on to Munster, you touched on it there. There was so much positives from the weekend that we'll get to, but the, the big news, unfortunately, was that reoccurrence of RJ Snyman's injury. It looks like he'll probably be out for another full season. It's just devastating for the player, devastating for the team. It, it's just an awful situation. 
Yeah, no, I'd say it's definitely another season because I think they'll have to be really cautious now that he's re, re-injured uh, the same area. Um, so, yeah, look, really disappointing for player and club. Uh, I think he was going to form... He, he was kind of a real reason why I really felt like this might be the, the year for them to get on the... to, to get over the kind of hump. Um, so I'm just... I'm bitterly disappointed for them. I, I just think it's a huge blow... Um, I think they've recruited really well. I think, you know, when they have their full complement, I just feel like he was the last little bit that I thought that gives them the little bit of grit and weight um, that'll take them over the over the edge. Um, so, yeah, really disappointed. It's very important now that he gets back in a positive state of mind. It looks like, you know, what can you tell from social media? But I suppose the message he put out um, is pretty positive. So hopefully that actually reflects his, his mindset going into what's going to be a very challenging another seven, eight months for this guy. So uh, how difficult is it, Luke, you know, how difficult is it with like a reoccurrence like that, where you thought you're over the hump and then it just happens again. You probably feel like you've gone all the way back to square one. How difficult is it to stay positive or to get back on the road to recovery? Did you find that difficult or like, you know, putting yourself in those shoes? Yeah, really awful place for an athlete to be, like especially considering that his one is so quickly after. Like I, I didn't do a lot of mine straight after. Like I, I, I while I injured the same area twice, they were different injuries. So um, yes, there was probably an inherent weakness maybe in that knee, but it was a different injury. So um, the same injury would be very concerning, uh, particularly for a big guy. Like it's not necessarily like it's it's a bit different between someone who's six foot one and a hundred kilos to someone who's you know, what is he, six foot nine or 10, whatever he is, and 125, 130 kilos. That's a lot of weight to be going through, you know, a very small little tendon. So um, all he can do is, is you know, is, is, is really get focused early, you know, and uh, make sure he recovers. The initial part of, of a recovery is really, really important. It's the most boring part because you can't do anything, but you just really need to bed in a really strong healing kind of period because um, I think the temptation will be that to be to be frustrated after injuring something again and being out for a very long time. Uh, so it needs to be patient in the initial part. Uh, make sure he gives it as much chance to heal properly in there again. Uh, and hopefully we see him back. I'm sure we will. Um, because it would be really disappointing to, to, to miss out on, on, on that kind of quality. And I think Munster will need him to get to the next level. I think, yes, uh, Thomas O'Hearn looked really good in the weekend. And that's really, really positive for them. Um, but, you know, they will miss him. And I think there's probably like there's a bit of a journey for Hearn to go on to get to Snyman's uh, level in the game. So just a really disappointing day on that front. Um, on what was you know such a super day for 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 Munster. They looked really really good. Yeah, Jonathan, like you know, up in Ulster, they'll have experience of something similar with Marcel could see his first two seasons, both being cut short by knee injuries as well. Like it's funny, even Rory O'Connor was writing in a paper about like Munster had him on a two-year contract or G Snyman, so. You know, now they have a decision to make. What do they do? Do they do they kind of back him to come back like Marcel conceded, you know, and be a real key player? Or do they say, mm, maybe we might, you know, cut, cut our losses in a way and be ruthless at the end of the season? It's a, it's a tough business decision, but that's one of the things that will be happening to be weighed up as well. Yeah, that's exactly it. It was a, the Marcel could see a situation was exactly what it reminded me of with him having got his second knee injury and a big win that was otherwise perfect as well and you know Marcel used to tell a story about how he was back home after the injury and a phone a phone number flashed up on his phone that he knew he was from Ulster and basically assumed that this was them ringing him 
to tell them that that was it. And he was massively surprised when they said that they were going to pick up the third year of that deal. So that sort of tells you the mindset that some players would be in after an injury like this, knowing that it is a ruthless, a ruthless business. But I could see it's almost the blueprint if Munster want to look at how somebody can come back and still make a massive impact because through injury, he had had no game time really at Ulster at all before those injuries and then came back and for two years or about a year and a half really was probably the best player the best player in the league and obviously I know with Munster that there is going to be this this issue of you know the outside finance that was involved in that deal and that's something that they're going to have to have to look at again or potentially even just weigh up if they can financially afford to take the risk against the backdrop of reduced budgets that all the provinces are operating under. But it's like Luke says, he's set up to be such an important part of that squad. And with the other players that they have there, it looks as if he would complement that team so well for the big, you know, the big ERC games, for the big European games. He's exactly what you would be looking for if you could get him on the pitch. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how they how they kind of manage the situation over the course of the season. But to get to the positives from Munster, then Luke, you know, going into the game, when I saw the team sheets named on Friday, you could have thought, oh, this will be a tough outing for some of these young players. But it kind of did. I was intrigued to see how they get on because it reminded me a couple of Leinster matches over the last maybe two or three years where Leinster went out with young teams to tough away venues. There was one against Glasgow a couple of years ago in particular where Hugo Keenan stood up and Will Connor stood up, and it really was the making of some of the young players and. It'll be interesting to see if Ben Healy, Liam Coombs playing at 13, Jack O'Sullivan at number eight with a really good game, Calvin Nash in the wing, another guy. They all really stood up. Like, and to, to beat Scarlets, a very experienced Scarlets team, so comprehensively, was mightily impressive, I thought. I put it up in a, against a lot of other wins they've had over the last while just because of how the young players played. Yeah, and they were good tries, weren't they? I mean, some of the tackling yeah. and defence was pretty soft. I'm sure Dwayne Peel would be... Um, you know there'll be a few uh, a few scalps after that meeting on Monday, I'd imagine, on the uh, on the dressing room door. But um, it was really good by Munster. I mean, I tell you what, I, I I don't know. I think it really throws up the Ben Healy conundrum to me. Like I think mm. he looks really really good, and I think he might really suit um, that Munster pack. Like his kicking game, like it's like it, it'd be nice to have that on the pitch bloody nice to have that on the pitch um and then like is like i don't know I, I, look that 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 conversation i still think joey carby's ahead there at 10 but you know my views around that like and i'm nearly thinking well like does this now give me an opportunity to put him back um at 15 and then does my team look really bloody good attacking wise and uh doesn't allow me to kind of release all this you know this talent that they have in the wing as well which we obviously saw so um yeah, I don't know. It's a it's a really interesting uh, kind of time for Munster now at this period because they look really, really sharp. A lot of the young forwards look really good. Uh, an away win, you know, and I always... It's funny, we had a great away win. I think it was in 2008 as a Leinster team. Um, and I really felt like... It was in Scarlet's as well, sorry. But it was a wet day. I think we might have gone into 14 men at one stage. But we hung on and got the win. And I really felt like that was a real catalyst to bring the squad together. A lot of young guys in the team as well that day. Um, you know, it was obviously very different conditions and a very different result. Ours was, might have been like a four or five point win or something. But I felt it brought the team together. And sometimes digging in and getting a big win or getting a tight win away from home. Those things can, I think, 
drive a, a whole squad on to a big year. Uh, and that, to me, could be a real catalyst for this team and a real confidence booster for a lot of those guys. Because sometimes you just need to have one of these kind of days against seasoned opposition, as you mentioned, Will, to give you that confidence that you belong there and that you you know you can do it and that the things that you're doing and training you know for the last couple of years against all the, the the first team they work in the big days if you deliver you know if you deliver them um so yeah we watch with beta bread and we hope that that's you know this this is a catalyst for this team because they've been asking or knocking on the door for a long time now and they need some silverware badly yeah no definitely as you say it's a lot different you know having the Tolman Park support behind you playing someone at home with these young players versus going away from home against, you know, the Scarlets had a lot of their Lions players back. Jonathan Davies, I think, was in the mix as well. You know, they had they had a lot of good of their top players out there and once they were comprehensive victors. One point, Jonathan, that Luke made there that's very interesting is about Ben Healy and this the out half landscape in Ireland generally. Like we had Johnny Sexton coming on after 20 minutes after Harry Byrne chip another kind of one of those niggly knocks that 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 he's very been very unlucky with and he looked very, very sharp. I know it was, you know, playing Zebra, it wasn't maybe the most difficult test of his career, but he still looked very, very sharp. And, you know, Johnny Sexton's obviously still number one, but then below him, it's very much in flux as to who's two, who's three. It's a really interesting battle, but I suppose at the same time, you'd like a few more kind of obvious contenders at the moment. Yeah, because I think what you sort of want really is preeminence at your province in order to think that you're going to make that step up to the international scene. And, you know, you talk about Ben Healy and all of a sudden we're in a debate about who's Munster's best 10. And to be fair to him, he was super, super impressive. Like if you think sort of back to this time last year, when he was hitting headlines, won a few matches with uh, the long range kicks that he can do. But what really impressed me about him on Sunday was his passing and his decision-making, like that pass out to Nash, I think it was, for the try in the right-hand corner, like that was measured beautifully and that would have been or wouldn't have been something that I think we would have associated with his game this time last year. So it's going to be really interesting to watch there. Like Luke mentioned it earlier up at Ulster between Burns and Madigan and there's some debate there about who's the best 10 in Connacht. We haven't seen Jack Cardi involved under Andy Farrell like he's not been capped and as much promises Harry Byrne has at Leinster um, coming on and getting that cap against the USA he just seems to have no luck at all with injuries Ross Byrne probably didn't have his best game the week before against Zebra but he's been involved in that environment and he's shown he can do it in big games at Leinster but if you talk about obvious candidates and I think the reality of the situation is not to overthink this. Johnny Sexton is still far and away Ireland's best 10. And I understand why there's so much debate about it because people are concerned of whether he's going to last until the World Cup or not. We're only two years away from that now. And the margin for me is actually, it's it's getting wider. I think Johnny Sexton is more obviously Ireland's best 10 now and over the last six or seven months than we would have said was the case a year and a half ago. Yeah, look, I, I think that's a, a very fair summation that Jonathan just gave there. And I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what 
uh, or how it's managed around November, like who the other people that go in with Sexton as the other, you know, second and third choices are and how Andy Farrell looks to play them. But you were kind of smiling there as Jonathan was answering. Uh, did you want to come in on it? Uh, I don't know. I probably should. But I, I saw him I saw him two mornings ago. He was grabbing a coffee before he was going out kicking or something. And uh, I I was just thinking, because I, I think the exact same thing as Jonathan. I thought it was a huge mistake, uh, you know, not to backtrack completely, but the Lions made a massive mistake not bringing him to uh, to South Africa. Um, but that's another conversation. Back to the current. Definitely. Could it work really well for him in the sense that, like, he looks really fresh? <laughs> well, I was saying here, like, you know, surely you've got to, you look like you've got another couple of years in your hair, have you? Like, uh, this was getting the, the early morning at seven o'clock coffee or whatever it was. But I was just thinking the same thing myself. I was like, geez, like, there's still a big gap. And he looks great, you know, if they can manage him well, um, you know, he's still the key guy. I mean, we saw him in Six Nations last year. I mean, if he plays 80 minutes for you, I mean, why do you stop? Like, you got a bad luck. Yes, you got a knock, but everyone's getting knocks. It looks like, you know, can Joey Carberry, like he, he's been fairly, you know, uh, you know, unlucky with injuries. Uh, we say the same thing about, uh, you know, Harry Byrne. Um, you know, I think, Harry, you know, Ross has probably been a little bit unlucky with some of the games that, I mean, th- those English trouncings, you know, you can't really put, put all of that at his feet, really. But they were difficult days for an out half. Um, so there's no obvious candidate. And as Jonathan says, I think when there's in 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 the in place of you know, the only place that that leads you is that there, the gap is still big. Uh, I think that's what you see as well every time you see him take the pitch. So um, it's a little bit concerning for Ireland, I think. Um, what is positive is that there's lots of good guys, but just you need to stand out in your province. It needs to be like, geez, I cannot leave you know, Ben Healy out in the big games. I cannot leave Billy Burns out in the big games. And I just think, you know, do we feel that? I'm not sure that we do feel that. Uh, I certainly don't I, when I look at the other provinces. Um, but I tell you what I do think is in the big games for Lens, if, you know, when Lens are playing, it's like, mm, if Johnny Sexton's not playing, I'm thinking that's a big loss to the team. I do know. And I think the same with Ireland. Um, that guy needs to play if we want to win the big game. So, yeah, it's... Um, He's still the number one. We need him to hang on for another while until there's an obvious candidate. Uh, so get those copies in <laughs> and stay fit. Yeah, because as Luke said there, like, there's, there's a lot of good players there, but I feel like you know sometimes one of, one of the, the candidates would have a really good performance and then the next day out, it wouldn't be quite as good. And they'd go from maybe second in line, potentially, because we're all chatting about it. And then you're like, ah, oh, we won't give, see him again for another while. There seems to be a lot of flux in the other positions. There's been guys in and out. And then they might be seen again for a long time. It, it's it, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting time for the position. Yeah, because we've obviously been massively spoiled for choice. Like if you think about the depth that Irish rugby should have at various positions to have, David Humphreys overlap with Ronan O'Gara, and then to have Ronan O'Gara overlap with Johnny Sexton, like to have that succession without ever having to worry about who the next guy is because the next guy was already there and had already taken over and had already shown that they could do it at the international level. And that's not something that I think that we've really seen anybody in their chances when Johnny Sexton hasn't been playing. Nobody's made you think this guy is capable or maybe not capable, capable is not fair. This guy is ready to go and win a World Cup quarterfinal against the All Blacks. This guy can go into a World Cup quarterfinal against France. So it's just that lack of the obvious successor. And I think there was obviously the hope that it was going to be Joey Carberry. And with injuries, that hasn't happened. Like in six months' time, 
Joey Carberry could be showing a bit of that magic for Munster. And then all of a sudden the debate reignites again. But, you know, as we stand here, whatever it is, a month away from the Autumn Internationals, even who Sexton's backup is, because I think you're right, even who's going to be wearing the number 22 shirt, like, it would take a brave man to put any money down in a bet on that. Like, yeah, it's another one of those interesting talking points. With not that many matches, I think there's two rounds of uh, of URC games, and I know there's a couple of interpros as well in the mixed air, which which might uh, which might point out one or two obvious people that could be called in. But just maybe to finish up, guys, I, I know it's maybe it, it was last week when it was announced, but the, the Club World Cup, this kind of possibility, Luke, of every fourth season, the Heineken Cup kind of feeds into this overall World Club Cup. I, what, what do you think of it? Do you think it's a good idea? Uh, I wish the people could see your your grouchy, grouchy head. I hate um, it. I absolutely hate it. But I'll let you, you know your feelings like, matter. Look, I, yeah. I've been kind of positive about it. Like, I think, like, I don't see why this is, uh, you know, there would be um, kind of resistance to at least giving this a try. I mean, like, I think we're always wondering... Uh, we, we saw obviously we get to see a little bit of this now with the South African teams joining uh, the URC. Um, but... I, I'd love to see what a Crusaders Leinster match looks like. I'd love to see a, you know, Waratahs against Ulster. Like, I'd love to see those kind of games um, because I think it's a great test. Because I think there, there's definitely a more pronounced, um, you know, difference in styles at club level than there is at international. Yes, international, they can play, they definitely play a little bit looser down in Northern Hemisphere, a faster paced game. But they still can't play as fast and loose as they do in Super Rugby. So I think the, the difference is actually even more pronounced at club level. And I'd love to see them come up against each other, against, say, a more, I don't know what you'd call it. Would you, is it a kind of a more uh, constrained or it's a tighter game maybe up here uh, in, in the Northern Hemisphere versus a very loose kind of open game down in the Southern Hemisphere? I think that'd be a great watch. Uh, and I'd love to see how both teams would cope with the different styles and how, say, one of those teams would, would cope with playing in Tolman Park or, uh, you know, the you know someone down in Suncorp, wherever it is. Uh, you know, I'd love to see those games because I think I think the fan, I think personally, I look, I can only speak myself on this, but as a rugby fan at this stage, um, you know, definitely would love to watch that. As a rugby player, at the, you know, back in, in, in when I was playing, would love to have been involved in that. I even, I'm even disappointed that I don't get to play now. Albeit the quality hasn't been great, but some of the South African teams that have entered the competition, I would have loved to have gone on those trips and play against those teams. So, yeah, I don't see a negative in it at this point. Will I mean, look, it's a challenge with the schedule, but um, no, that's I'm sure that's that's something that we can overcome. Yeah, well, like my only real, quite obviously, I do agree. It, it's definitely would. Be, it's a flaw kind of in the makeup of the sport that we we have we don't have an opportunity for. The, the cream of the crop in the south to play the cream of the crop in the north. That is uh, something that you would like to rectify. But I just but you don't get that in soccer either, will though. The World Club Cup is well. See, ah, but it's not, real. Like it's in. Is it? Is oh. that a big thing? I don't know. Yeah, but I think but, that's the perfect example of you know that's something that this is essentially the same template, and that doesn't work. Like people are only really aware of that whenever. Or people over here, anyway, are only really aware of that when an English team has won the Champions League and all of a sudden you're wondering where they've gone for two weeks in December. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Fixtures, you know? Where are Liverpool? Oh, they're off winning the whatever Super Cup. <laughs> like, that's, that's the thing. Like, so every fourth year, 
would the Champions Cup wouldn't be you know played to a conclusion. Like I, I like the Champions Cup. It's one of my favorite tournaments. I, like sometimes I feel like no one else likes it, but like a very select few people in Ireland that like you know I feel like some sort of old man shaking my fist at the clouds. Like I love this tournament. I don't want it every fourth year to just be like cut off at the quarterfinal stage. The South African teams are already going to be in Europe. The Australian teams. I don't know if anyone's watched them over the last number of years. They're brutal. Like you know, so they might improve. To be fair, um. What is important to say though is we will be throwing them a lifeboat. Like we're we're in way better shape than they are financially. They need this more than we do. But yeah, and I would it's it obviously financial. Four years, I, I think hmm? it would. Yeah, no, yeah, like I agree at the point that like you know is it worth trying once anyway and seeing and if they do it once and it's you know doesn't capture the imagination or it's a complete logistical nightmare or maybe it's okay we did it once but i just i don't know like so every every fourth year there's just no champions cup winner i just i don't know it doesn't sit right with a traditionalist like me but i think like that would be the problem that i would have with it as well but like it's interesting that you mentioned this sort of select group of people that like the european cup and like is there a possibility that is it is just irish people around our age who have come to love rugby during the time of the Heineken Cup and the romanticism connected to Ulster winning it, to Monsters uh, quest to win. Because it really does seem that like this is a decision taken or a plan that's been mooted without any thought to what it would do to the Champions Cup to not have a champion every fourth year. And it just ties into this sort of idea that like essentially every decision I think that they've made around the European Cup since they got re- since they reformatted the Heineken Cup has just made it worse and worse and worse. And it's like you're taking something that was once probably viewed as one of the most successful and well-organized competitions in the world of sport, because it really was that successful in terms of its reputation around around the world. And you look at it now and it's like the same excitement's not there, the pool stages are abridged, we've lost things like the Festive Interpros, they've added more, more knockout games with the two-legged quarterfinals, and it just it just feels like another tinker or something that's going to make the Heineken Cup worse, and I do think that that's sad. Like I'd have, I would have no problem with it if it was like a one-off exhibition game between the Super Rugby champion and the winner of the Champions Cup, but it's it's this continual idea that in rugby you have to rob Peter to pay Paul. So if you want to have this champions or this club world championship, then you can't have a European champion. And I think it has to be worth what you're losing. And I don't know if it would be. It's tricky because I think they do have to do that though, Jonathan, because of the nature of the game. Like, do you know the way in soccer, like, you, you know, you could have someone, you know, playing 50 or 60 games a season. Like, that's just not feasible in rugby. It just can't, you know, you, the body won't allow it. So you are constrained by, you know, what you can actually do uh, in terms of the fixture. So, yeah, like, it, it's, it's a really tricky one. And as you say, I mean, look, I would have grown up, the same as you guys, uh, you know, watching uh, the, the Heineken Cup and watching that, you know, monstrous quest all those years where they got so close, you know, the hand of back, all those kind of things. Then obviously I was involved in the Leinster side of things, which is so exciting. And even the buzz around Dublin and, and the province, uh, you know, on a big European Cup day. Um, yeah, I mean, 
maybe we're all panicking a bit because of kind of COVID and the implications of that. Like, do we really need to do that? Do we do we need to tinker with these things that have been so good? Um, I see no harm in trying it out, but you know, I, I wouldn't, as you say, like uh, our competition is pretty strong. Um, you know, in in a lot of respects, I know there's been some discontent over you know in England and France at times with it, but. Um, you know, I think our competition is strong still and people still want to win it. Like once they get out of the pools, the, the English and French teams are all in. Um, it's the pool stages that have been causing the problem, I think, hasn't it? But uh, yeah, it, it's interesting space to watch again. Like, you know, uh, I, I suppose I am a little torn having listened to both the Europeans and I, because I agree with a lot of what you say, but the other part of me goes, I would still love to see some of those like a crusaders up here, you know, in, in a knockout. So um yeah, I don't know. I'm, now I'm more torn having spoken to you guys. I thought I was going to be very definitive on this one and I was excited. You two put a real dampener on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of the many things that will be interesting to see how it unfolds over the course of the years. Maybe more plans uh, become available for the moment. Jonathan, Luke, thanks so much for joining me. No worries. See you again. That's all we have time for this week on the left wing. We'll be back next week with another podcast. And in the meantime, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or listen on independent.ie. So until next week, thanks for listening. And goodbye.